This evening we come to the second part of a series that we began at the end of September, uh, which I've simply called The Reason for God. It's uh, because I have stolen the title uh, and a lot of the thinking from a book not long ago published by Tim Keller, uh, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan in New York. It's an opportunity for us to think together about some of the hard questions of faith. And as I've said already, I think it's a mistake to regard these questions as only questions for those who, who don't yet believe. I think the truth is a lot of us who claim Christian faith still have significant questions. Uh, our belief and our trust in Jesus Christ is not founded on having 100% certainty and 100% satisfaction about every intellectual question we could possibly have. I think it, it's a rare person who can claim that level of certainty. So we say together that, that we all have questions. For some of this, these questions uh, still act as barriers to keep us from committing ourselves uh, finally to Jesus Christ. A month ago, we began with the first question, uh, there can't be just one true religion. Uh, and if you were here, you'll maybe remember some of our thinking on that subject. This evening, we come to another question. How could a good God allow suffering? I think that question probably works at a couple of different levels. Uh, it can work at a, a philosophical or intellectual level. Uh, we might find ourselves asking questions uh, or saying something like this. God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might on the, on the one hand be all-powerful, but not good enough to end evil and suffering. Or on the other hand, he may be good, but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. But he can't be both. He can't be all-good and all-powerful. In a world of widespread suffering and evil, the all-good, all-powerful God that Christians speak about simply cannot exist. So we can have philosophical problems about the question of God and suffering. For other people, that's maybe not their issue. The question of suffering is a much, much more personal one. We might say something like this. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it does exist. Maybe God does exist. And even if he does, the suffering in the world shows that he cannot be trusted. These are the kinds of, of questions that many of us have in our minds when we think of suffering. As I try to address this just briefly this evening, I'd like to, to tackle those two different kinds of questions. First of all, a couple of suggestions regarding the intellectual and philosophical problems. And then I'd like to share briefly what the Bible has to say about God uh, and suffering. So a first point on this, this philosophical question. And the first point is to say that suffering is not evidence against the existence of God. In his book, The Miracle of Theism, 
philosopher J.L. Mackey argues that if a good and powerful God exists, he wouldn't allow pointless evil. Since there's much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, Mackey says, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some God, or, or maybe no God, exists, but not the, the traditional God of the Christian scriptures. A lot of philosophers have identified the flaw in Mackey's thinking. He's taken for granted that all evil that appears pointless to him must, in fact, be pointless. Just because he can't see or imagine a good reason for why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean that there can't be one. We noticed last month when we started this uh, Reason for God series that every doubt, every bit as much as faith, is based on a leap of faith. For Mackey, he uses what he perceives to be the pointlessness of evil, the pointless evil around him, as the grounds to disprove the existence of God. For that to work, he has to be absolutely sure that all evil is pointless. He has built his doubt about the existence of God on that leap of faith, can he really claim that all evil is pointless? I very much doubt it. In this series, we're going to see a general category of thinking that repeats itself. And that is that we need to recognize that our beliefs, whether they're for God or are against the existence of God, they're all leaps of faith. We need to be sure that we're expecting just as much proof for our skeptical beliefs as we are for our beliefs that lead to faith. Otherwise, we're not acting with intellectual integrity. The Bible, the book which Christians believe God gives us to reveal himself to us, shows us time and again just how God is present in situations that appear to be only evil. Take, for example, the, the story of Joseph, he of the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Don't know how much you remember uh, of Joseph's story. He was an arrogant young man, hated by his brothers, and they took him prisoner. They kept him in a pit before finally selling him into slavery in Egypt. Now, can you imagine being on the psychologist's couch, uh, the psychologist's couch and telling any story worse than being sold into slavery by your own family, what's that going to do to a person? What greater personal evil could a young man experience? I'm sure that in the years where he was a, a servant and a slave in Egypt and then a prisoner, Joseph prayed often to be relieved from the suffering, but, but he never was. For years and years and years, he suffered as a captive and a prisoner in Egypt. But a remarkable thing was happening all this time. God was changing his character entirely. Joseph was being refined and strengthened in his trials. Eventually, he rose to become the prime minister of Egypt, and he saved thousands of lives and even the lives of his own family. 
without the years of suffering, Joseph would never have become the, the man, the, the agent for good that he did become. He brought healing to many, but his suffering was an important part of it. Tell me this truthfully. Can you not identify with Joseph's experience? Isn't it true that the experiences that really build us are often the difficult ones? Isn't it true that we don't seem to learn half so much when life is all plain sailing as we learn when we're suffering in life's storms? Often people look back on a period of illness uh, or a period of suffering and they recognize it as an indispensable part of their growth to maturity. There was a time in my life in my mid-twenties when more than any other time I suffered and experienced loss. A relationship with a girlfriend of about nearly six years whom I thought I, I was going to marry. We split up just as we were about to get engaged. And I was devastated by that. For month after long, lonely month, I, I suffered uh, heartache of that loss. I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say just now. I wouldn't choose to go through that or anything like it again anytime soon. But with hindsight, I look back on that period as a period of great blessing in my life. I wouldn't trade the, the insight or the character or the strength that I think I've gained from that period. With time and perspective, I've learned to see a good reason for at least some of that suffering that I experienced at that time. And as I begin to see purpose in some suffering, I'm beginning to wonder, might it not be possible from God's vantage point that there are good reasons for it all? I don't know. So the first thing we say this evening is that suffering isn't necessarily evidence against the existence of God. There's a second thing we can say on the, the philosophical question uh, of suffering and the existence of God. Evil and suffering may, if anything, provide evidence for the existence of God. C.S. Lewis, the Belfast-born author, originally rejected the idea of God because of the, the suffering that he saw in the world around him. But then he began to realize that, that evil was even more of a problem for him as an atheist than it was for him as a believer. In the end, he realized that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. In mere Christianity, Lewis says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Lewis realized that a lot of our modern objections 
to God are based on a sense of fair play and of justice. We believe that people ought not to suffer, that they ought not to be excluded or to die of hunger or of oppression. But where did we get that idea from? The evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural in the natural order. On what basis, if we don't believe in God, can we judge the natural world to be horribly wrong or unfair or unjust? Without belief in God or in some power beyond the natural order, we don't have any basis for outrage against injustice. The philosopher Alvin Plantinga put it like this, could there really be such a thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live, A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. There is no such thing as genuine or appalling wickedness. If you think that there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and that it's not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Friends, if there is no God, you and I are little more than animals with clothes on, just another species. Without a higher authority, each one of us is entitled in the end to do whatever they see fit in our own eyes. Without God, we have no real grounds for outrage at the actions of Robert Black 30 years ago when he abducted Jennifer Cardi. He was simply doing what he wanted to do. He was only being true to the only final authority in the modern world, himself. The outrage that we do feel against Black and his actions and other occasions when we're confronted with this kind of evil, they tell us that there must be a higher authority after all. Our reaction to unjust suffering may just be an indicator that we do believe in God. When we approach the question of suffering as an intellectual or philosophical problem, it seems that it's a problem for everyone at least as big a problem for those who don't believe in God as for those who do. So it's a mistake, even if it's an understandable mistake, to imagine that somehow getting rid of God makes the problem of evil easier to manage. We said at the outset that our problems with suffering aren't limited to the intellectual or philosophical problems that we've been thinking about so far. For many of us, the the problem is much more personal than that. So what if, if suffering and evil doesn't logically disprove God, we say? I'm still angry. This, this 
philosophizing doesn't get God off the hook. As we spend the rest of our time this evening, a few more minutes thinking about God and suffering, and particularly what the Bible teaches about God and suffering, we're going to see very quickly that God doesn't try to get himself off the hook. The Bible teaches that the Christian God came to earth precisely to put himself on the hook of, Christian, of, of human suffering. In Jesus Christ, God suffered the greatest depths of pain imaginable. And in the end, Christianity doesn't really give a reason for every experience of human pain. What it does is it offers us resources to live with the suffering that we experience in the real world, to face our lives with hope and with courage rather than bitterness and despair. When the gospel writers tell us about Jesus' life, they're very clear that he knew and experienced real suffering. Do you know what's weird? They don't portray him as a stoic hero. They portray him as someone who is fearful of the suffering that he experiences. Passage we read earlier this evening, Luke tells us of the occasion in the Mount of Olives when being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The gospel writer Mark records for us Jesus saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all show Jesus trying to avoid death, asking his father if there can be some other way out of it. And finally on the cross itself, he cries out to his father who has forsaken him. first thing we say about God and suffering is that in Jesus Christ, God suffered. Truly and really. To understand Jesus' suffering, we need to remember who, who Jesus was. If we want to get a full grasp of, of the suffering of Jesus Christ, Jesus was the Son of God from eternity, he had spent company, kept company with his heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit, the three of them an eternal community of love. And the worst part of Jesus' suffering, much, much worse than anything physical that he experienced, was a part that we can't even begin to imagine, his suffering of being cut off from his Father. We all suffer when relationships are broken, but, but not like this. I don't think we can even begin to imagine what it was like for Jesus to contemplate separation from his Father God, this love, this infinite, perfect love that he had known eternally. This is what made Jesus' suffering unbearable. And Christians have come to understand that this, this death of Jesus Christ on the cross was for us. That he went through that separation from God because he carried in that moment our, our sin, our rebellion, 
and that he took in that moment a punishment that should rightfully be ours. That's why Jesus struggled so in Gethsemane. He had come to the garden to be for a short time with his father. And instead he he looked hell in the face. He wanted to look into heaven, but looked only into hell, separation from his father, and it shook him to the core. So the Bible teaches that Jesus really suffered. It teaches that his greatest suffering was his exclusion from, from the presence of his Father. Christianity among the world religions is unique in that it claims that God became fully and uniquely human in Jesus Christ and that God therefore knows firsthand despair and rejection and loneliness, and poverty, and bereavement, and imprisonment, and torture. On the cross, he went beyond the the worst of our human sufferings and experienced that cosmic rejection from God, his Father. It's a pain the like of which we cannot understand. Why does he do that? The Bible tells us that all of this was done out of love. All of this was done that Jesus might rescue us and this world. All of this was done to pay for our sins so that Jesus could end evil and suffering without ending us. So where have we got to? We ask our question again, Why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we still don't know what the answer is. But we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he doesn't care and that he's detached from our uh, suffering and indifferent to it. God in Christ takes the misery of our suffering on himself. And if we embrace the Christian teaching that in Christ God is on the cross, then we have a deep consolation and a strength to face the brutal realities that this life seems to bring. John Stott, the pastor of All Souls Church in London, died uh, this last summer. And a lot of people have uh, been thinking again about some of the things that he preached and some of the things that he wrote. For Stott, the the suffering of God was not something that drove him from God. In the end, it was something that drew him to God. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could I worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples 
and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the cross of, of this world. But each time after a while I've had to turn away. And in imagination I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. We're almost done here for this evening. In the end, we need to know more than just that God understands our suffering. We need hope to know that there's something more and something that lies beyond. The Christian faith speaks not only of the suffering of God in the death of Jesus Christ, it speaks also of the victory of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible teaches that the future isn't some immaterial paradise, but that it's a new heaven and a new earth. Read Revelation 21 sometime. It tells not of human beings being hoovered up into heaven, but of a heaven coming down and renewing and perfecting the material world. That's the biblical view of things, the view of resurrection. The future isn't a consolation for a life that we have never had. It's a restoration of the life we had always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and be repaired, but that in some way it's going to make the final glory and joy even greater. Just after the climax of The Lord of the Rings, I was going to say films. They, they were a book before they were films. Did you know that? Just after the climax, Sam Ganji, one of the, the hobbits, discovers that, that his friend, the wizard Gandalf, isn't dead as he had thought, but that he's alive. I thought you were dead! He cries. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the Christian answer to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And life will somehow be the greater for it once having been lost 
and once having been broken. Our question this evening, how could a good God allow suffering? We don't know all the reasons, but we believe that he does. We believe that he not only allows suffering, we believe that he suffered for us. We believe that he knows our suffering too. And we believe that he's making all things new. Let us pray. Father God, only you know the suffering that each one of us brings to a gathering like this this evening. Only you know the impact that our suffering has had on our hearts and what it's done in our relationship or, or not relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that for all the answers we don't have, that we know that you have suffered with us. Jesus, we know that you have died in our place that we might live. That you might take the evil and the suffering from our lives and finally from this world and make all things new. Father God, we thank you that you've done all this. Lord, whoever we are, help us to align our lives to these truths. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.